there are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Welcome to this week's edition of Next Steps Forward. I'm your host, Chris Meek. As always, it's great to have you with us again. Our special guest today is retired U.S. Army Major General Greg Martin, a 36-year active duty combat veteran and bipolar disorder survivor. General Greg Martin, welcome to Next Steps Forward. Thank you, Chris. It's an honor to be here. Now, we appreciate your time. The honor is mine, sir. General, Next Steps Forward is about empowerment and personal well-being, particularly through times of adversity. And General Martin personifies those qualities. Greg Martin has demonstrated his exemplary leadership within the many positions that he held throughout his impressive military career. In addition to serving multiple overseas tours, Greg Martin commanded the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers Northwest Division, served as Commandant of the U.S. Army Engineer School, commanded Fort Leonard Wood, and served as Deputy Commanding General of the Third Army, U.S. Army Central, Commandant of the Army War College, President of National Defense University, and Special Assistant to the Chief of Engineers. He was awarded the Distinguished Service Medal twice, the Bronze Star Medal, and the Combat Action Badge. A West Point graduate, he also earned a PhD from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Uh, Sir, I think in Webster's Dictionary is going to be a picture of you next to uh, Overachiever there. So (laughs) congratulations on distinguished career. So General Martin has also shown himself to be a leader when it comes to educating people and bringing awareness to the sensitive issue of mental health, in particular, the symptoms and often devastating effects of bipolar disorder. So General, let's back up to the start. Why did you choose to join the Army and make it your career? Uh, before I answer that, let me, you touched on being an overachiever. All those things, the excessive energy, the enthusiasm, the drive, the optimism, those were sort of the pre-harbingers of my bipolar disorder. And it's actually, there's a psychiatric term called um, hyperthymic. Uh, and I have a very noted psychiatrist who said that I almost certainly had hyperthymia from the time I was a teenager all the way up until I burst into full-fledged bipolar disorder. So they, they kind of go hand in hand, and we'll come back to that later. Um, okay, why I joined the Army. Uh, I always wanted to serve. My dad was a World War II veteran. Uh, when I went away to college at University of Maine after high school, I was a walk-on to Army ROTC. It was just something I wanted to do. And that helped inspire me to go to West Point. So uh, I went to West Point for education, opportunity, service, adventure. Uh, And then I owed five years out in the force. And what really kept me in beyond those five years was the soldiers. I just loved being with soldiers, serving with them, doing hard, tough, dangerous, important things. And it became more than a mission. It became a calling for me. And that's what kept me in for so many years. So obviously, you were extraordinarily successful in everything you undertook. Did you have a bipolar disorder all along, like you just touched on? Or was it something that developed only when its symptoms became the most acute? Um, it, it developed later. Um, like I said, I, I had, uh, what one psychiatrist has said is hyperthymic, um, personality, which is all that very, very positive, upbeat, energetic, um, characteristics. Um, and then I had a pre, uh, a genetic predisposition for bipolar. So there's, there, 
the doctors, scientists think there is a bipolar gene, but they have not discovered it yet. So what they call it is a genetic predisposition. And that predisposition, it is triggered by a very, very stressful event. And it could be any number of super traumatic, stressful things. And for me, it was uh, the war in Iraq. Ironically, what, what my brain did to cope with the stress of combat was it just started um, overproducing and distributing uh, the chemicals of dopamine, endorphins, serotonin, and that elevated me to an even higher level than I had been before the war. So I was extremely happy, uh, energetic, enthusiastic, positive to a uh, really an unnatural degree. <clears throat> and as a result of my brain doing that, creating and distributing so many of these chemicals, it basically disrupted and damaged the brain circuitry. And so that's what triggered my bipolar disorder. So I actually went into bipolar in 2003 in the Iraq war. And I've, that, I've been in, had bipolar ever since. Um, for the next 11 years after 2003, I performed at an extremely high level. And I think the bipolar actually gave me a biochemical advantage over where I would have been. But over a period of years, my manic highs started getting higher and higher. My depressive lows started getting lower and lower until in 2014, until I really had serious bipolar by about 2012, 2013, still performing at a high level. But in 2014, I went uh, what they call acutely manic, where, I mean, I just was manically insane. And that's when General Dempsey removed me from my position as president of NDU, which, oh, by the way, I he did exactly the right thing. And he gave me a, a command order to go get psychiatric um, medical attention. Um, and then at the end of that period, though, what goes up must come down with bipolar. So I went extremely high, like a rocket going up into space and then exploding. And then I crashed in a horrible, horrible depression and psychosis for two years. So um, I think that answered the question. So, and then you never lose bipolar. Once you have it, it doesn't go away. And so I've gotten really good medical care. And I know we'll talk about this later in the, uh, in the talk. Um, but it's on me to sort of be forever vigilant and fight this forever war. Because if I let my guard down, the bipolar could come back with a vengeance and be worse than I had it before. So once you have it, you have it. You know, you touched on some of the characteristics of bipolar disorder, but for the people in our audience who might not have much knowledge about it, could you please show us, you know, exactly what is bipolar disorder? Sure. And there are whole books written about this. There's an entire manual. I, I'd hold it up. It's about this thick that talks about what it is. But in short, in a nutshell, uh, bipolar is a mood disorder in which the moods oscillate between high, which is called mania, and lows, which are depression. And these are due, these ups and downs, they're not normal, uh, oh, I'm happy today, or I'm having a bad day. I'm sad. It's it's much more than that. They're due to the over and under production of these critical brain chemicals, predominantly dopamine, endorphin, serotonin. Um, and they're extremely dangerous. Both ends of the, the mania and the depression are extremely dangerous, not only to oneself, but also to others. Um, they're, act they're actually life-threatening. Um, 
And when someone has bipolar disorder, it absolutely requires professional medical care. But the good news is that it's treatable with the right care and medicine. We've had a few conversations about active duty and veterans with with or without bipolar disorder might not be known about. But could you share some statistics about how many people are affected by bipolar disorder and how they might be affected? Well, it's estimated that between 5 and 10 million Americans have bipolar disorder. And of course, if you take a worldwide perspective, it's you know way, way higher than that. And a lot of people think that even the, even the 10 million is low, that it's more than that. Um, but that's that, that was about the best estimate I could get. 5 to 10 million Americans have it and have been diagnosed. How many people have bipolar and have never been diagnosed is unknown. We, we don't even know what that number is. Um, that, that's probably very high as well. And then uh, it's estimated that uh, more than 10 times that number are affected in one way or another because bipolar is such a destructive disorder on relationships. Uh, and so when I say that, 10 times more are affected. I'm talking about family, friends, and work colleagues. Uh, the effect of all this, if the bipolar is not treated, is really, really devastated. Um, marriages are ruined. Uh, families are torn apart. Friendships are crumble. Uh, colleagues um, don't know what to do. They're confused. It totally disrupts the workplace. Um, careers are ended. Finances are ruined. Um, Drug and alcohol addiction is common. Uh, criminal activity is not at all unusual. Uh, acts of violence are fairly common. Um, and then people with bipolar frequently end up uh, in a state of homelessness, they end up in jail, and many, many commit suicide. Wow. So you were really candid about your personal experience in an article that you and one of your sons wrote for Task and Purpose in March. And that's how you and I got connected. You described how everything changed for you in July 2014, as you mentioned, when the country's top-ranking military officer ordered you to report to his office. As you said, he told you that if you didn't resign by the end of the day, that he would fire you as president of the National Defense University. That man was a friend of yours for more than 20 years, and he offered you to undergo a psychiatric evaluation at Walter Reed Medical Center. Could you pick up the story from there? What led to that moment? What was going through your mind when it happened, and what happened after that? Great question. Uh, I think what led to that moment was when I my bipolar was triggered in Iraq in 2003. That was the trigger point. And then as I went forward as a general officer and the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, continued to go on and uh, I had positions of increasing responsibility to transform the engineer force to be one of the lead people in all of Department of Defense on the counter IED feat, uh, counter IED um, improvised explosive device uh, 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 war that we had going on. By the way, the IED was the biggest killer and uh, maimer of American troops in the war. So I had big jobs and I went to um, uh, the Army War College, commanded Fort Leonard Wood, NDU. And in each of those, my four-star boss said, hey, Greg, I need you to uh, transform this institution. They're stuck in the Cold War mindset. They're not responsive. They're not innovative. I need you to get in there and change things and bring them forward into the current wars. Make a difference. Make sure that they're supporting in real time the current wars that we're in, not some theoretical war that we might get in. And so I really took that to task. And I there were a number of things about the wars we were in that really bothered me. 
uh, in the Iraq war, some of the policy blunders by our national level authorities, um, specifically disbanding the Iraqi army, terrible mistake against all the best military advice that were given. Um, the deep debathification of the, of the um, Iraqi society, again, went against all the best military advice. So those things, remember I was, I was already bipolar and they just infuriated me. Like we've got our soldiers over here fighting, dying, bleeding, and our, some of our top leaders are making these catastrophic decisions. It just sent me into rage, which is part of having bipolar disorder. You get agitated, stressed out, angry, rage. Those are very typical characteristics of being manic. And so that started happening to me. And then I had two sons that were on active duty fighting in the wars, and I knew all their friends. And then, to, you know, the stress of them fighting in these institutions that I was leading in my opinion, not doing everything we could, put it all on the line institutionally to support the soldiers in the field who they were putting it all on the line. It just it elevated my stress to a whole new level. So it fueled those general officer jobs. They fueled my bipolar disorder. And I went higher and higher and higher. Then I started going into the depressions. And that's what led to 2014. Um, you know, I had a I had a mandate from the chairman to General Dempsey to go in and transform National Defense University. We had a great plan, and as in my previous institutional jobs, I I had tremendous resistance to change. People did not want to change. They fought me and the chairman's intent every step of the way. Not everybody, but many, and um, you know that just elevated my stress, made me angry, uh, sent me into rage, and uh, it fueled this bipolar. Um, as, as far as the meeting with General Dempsey, it was remarkable. I was in acute state of acute mania, and I didn't know what he was going to say. I had worked with him, for him, uh, around him for 20 years. By the way, absolutely magnificent leader. Loved, lo love him to this day. Uh, he wrote a great foreword to my book that will you know, come out one of these days. And uh, I went in, and he just you know, he gave me a big hug, laid it right on the line. Greg, your time at NDU is done. Uh, you know, you have until 1700 to resign or I'll fire you. And, I, and, and, he, and, uh, and then he said, uh, by the way, you did a magnificent job. Uh, I don't know anybody who could have done as good a job as you did in such a short time in two years, but you've got to go. Uh, I needed, you, you took the ball from the end zone to the red zone, but because of, you know, the tension and the, uh, you know, disharmony between you and the staff and faculty, I have to get you out of there for your own good and I got to get you out of there with a new quarterback for the good of the university and the mission. He said, and by the way, I've gotten many, many um, complaints that you uh, and uh, concerns about you that you have become mentally and emotionally unbalanced. And I'm concerned, and I think you need to go get uh, medical help, psychiatric help. And they said, well, what, she said, so what's your story? What do you think about all this? And so I told him, I said, hey, you gave me a great mission. I went in, kicked ass, made stuff happen. People didn't want to change. They resisted everything that you wanted done and I wanted done. And it led to, you know, this situation. I, and I said, I think you should keep me in there. Uh, I'll, uh, I, I, if, you, if I have just, you know, six more months, I'll get the job done. And, you know, it'll be like a completely renovated university. And he said, uh, oh, you're like Sisyphus, you know, out of Greek, Greek mythology, you know, push the boulder to the top of the hill and 
you'll get it over, but it keeps rolling you back down. And, uh, and we laughed. We, we had a great time, and it was fun. He's always a fun guy. He's got a great sense of humor. I mean, I, I love the guy. And I had no uh, grudge against him at all for um, removing me. In fact, I was in such a high state of mania that you would think a normal person would have been disappointed, dejected, you know, upset, had their feelings hurt. I didn't feel any of that. Because my brain was pumping, you know, the happy chemicals, the happy drug into my brain. And in fact, I, when, when we were sort of going through and I knew, okay, you know, I'm gone. My time at NDU is over. I started thinking and anticipating, what's my next big mission from God? I'm going to get an even bigger mission than NDU. It's going to be bigger and more important. And that's called grandiosity, which is a hallmark of mania. And uh, so that's what I was thinking. Um, what what else? I, so, I think that pretty well covered it. Yeah. And oh, just to, sorry, go ahead, sir. One thing that did happen, though, is I was very close to my peak mania. And within a month or over the next four months, I spiraled out of mania down into depression. And by November, uh, you know, my end at NDU was in July. By November, I had crashed into severe depression because what goes up must come down. And mine then got infused with psychosis, which in my case was mostly delusions. You know, absolutely catastrophic things that were the creation of my own brain that were terrifying and scared me to death. So just a week before, two medical doctors your general practitioner and a psychiatrist had both given you a clean bill of health. How did they miss it? And how could they have been so wrong? Well, bipolar disorder is very, very hard to diagnose. Most people, the average is about 10 to 12 years between the onset of bipolar and a proper diagnosis. And then it usually takes, you know, several more years to get put on the right medication that actually helps treat it. Um, very hard to diagnose. Bipolar masks itself among the manic phase of bipolar masks and disguises itself among many positive traits. In my case, nobody knew. They just thought, oh, well, you know, Greg just seems a little more energetic than he normally was, but he's always energetic. Oh, he's a little more enthusiastic, uh, but he's always enthusiastic. Oh, wow. Well, he's, he's talking more than normal, but he always talks a lot. Uh, geez, he's talking a little faster today, but he always talks fast. And so it's, it's masked. And the, the days that I went in to see the psychiatrist, I felt perfectly fine. I didn't feel crazy or like I had mania. I wasn't depressed. And I sat down and had a very high level um, rational conversation with these doctors about what I was trying to do at NDU on behalf of the chairman, et cetera. So they came out of it extremely impressed. They were like, whoa, man, there's nothing wrong with you. You're fit for duty. The, the chief of psychiatry even said, he wrote, he said, he said, Martin's the most uh, mentally and emotionally balanced uh, flag officer I've ever met, I've ever encountered, a flag officer being a general or an admiral. Um, so that's kind of it. Uh, you know, uh, people ask my wife, and she wrote a really nice little piece in my book. She said, I was like a frog in a pot of water that the heat just went up more and more and more. And I, I never realized nothing ever seemed wrong until the end. So she was living with me for 11 years of bipolar disorder and never realized anything was wrong. I was fascinated by something you wrote in the article in Task and Purpose, that bipolar helped you until it didn't. Could you explain that to our listeners, please? 
I will. Uh, it gave me a biochemical advantage. Uh, the extra dopamine, endorphins, and other chemicals, they gave me more uh, energy, drive, creativity, et cetera, until I, it became too much. And, you know, there's, there's only there's a saturation point where my performance and energy went up, up, up for over a decade until it had a negative effect. So my mania went so high that, you know, a couple different ways to explain it. One psychiatrist said, imagine your brain going up like a rocket into space and then blowing up. He said, that's with the type of acute mania that you had. Um, and th there's other ways to think of it too, but it was so high that I went literally manically insane um, and then followed a few months later by severe depression and psychosis that lasted, you know, a couple of years of hell. <laughs> you know, a lot of the mania is until your mania gets really, really bad. It, it's, it's like you're on drugs. It's like, uh, not that I would know, but it's supposedly it's a, it, you're intoxicated. You're on a high, an unnatural high that elevates performance. You know, I was getting by on three hours of sleep. I was working all the time. I was doing, you know, killer PT, you know, physical training. Um, I was just like on the, riding a wave. You know, I was riding on a gigantic wave. You know, if you would look and think of those surfers in Hawaii on those, you know, 30-foot waves, that's what I was. I was riding that wave. But when I crashed, man, did I crash. So if that's the case with other people experiencing bipolar, what can or should the people around them look for and do? Uh, First, we need to have better mental health awareness training in the military, and I would say society in general, probably in schools and uh, civilian workplaces as well. People need to recognize and understand what the symptoms of these various uh, mental health uh, disorders and maladies are. Um, in my case with bipolar, you know, what are the symptoms of mania and depression? And they're very clear. I mean, the psych psychiatrists in their manuals, they spell it out very, very clearly. There's about, you know, half a dozen to 10 uh, very distinct, pretty easy to identify criteria that if you know what they are, you should be able to start seeing it with people. So, you know, recognize the symptoms of mania and depression Recognize changes in behavior, drastic changes in behavior. Um, you know, one thing that comes to mind, and we can talk a little more about the troops, is I think back to all the troop leadership positions I had when you had a relatively good soldier who suddenly went bad, like they got in fights or they trashed their barracks room or they went downtown and, and tore up a bar or they crashed a car or they started doing just really crazy, stupid stuff, getting in fights, violent. And, you know, the military that I sort of grew up in, because we had such poor awareness and training in, in mental health, we basically dealt with it as just a behavior discipline problem. So you took the soldier and you said, hey, give them uh, counseling or put them on extra duty. And if they do it again, you give them an Article 15. If they do it again, maybe give them a court martial. If they do it again, you separate them from the service. But maybe how many of those people that's, that's uh, you know, the bad side of mania. And, and you know, they've, they've actually blown up and their behavior has changed radically. But I never once, and no one in any unit I ever was in, looked at a soldier who had gone bad with violence and crazy behavior and said, wow, I wonder if that guy has mania. I wonder if they have bipolar disorder. 
hey, let's get some behavioral health treatment for this person. And the shame of that is that by not dealing with a potential um, uh, you know, mental health problem, and I'm not saying all of them did have mental health, but I bet a bunch of them did. They have no medical record of mental health. They then get kicked out of the military. They go back to their hometown, often with severe mental health issues. They probably crash into terrible depression. If they're married, they probably get divorced. Uh, they typically become alcohol or drug dependent. Their family falls apart. Um, they often end up homeless or in jail or commit suicide. So. You know, I, I, I'm not so sure. I know I was not trained to identify symptoms as a young person coming up in leadership roles. So I think those changes in behavior are, are, are key. Um, I think people, if, if they do notice, like if there were people around me, because I've gone back and interviewed dozens and dozens of my subordinates from the beginning of my Army career all the way till I left from NDU. And once I had came down with the bipolar in 2003, I had a number of subordinates. Most of them said, hey, you were a great leader. You were super visionary, blah, 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 all good stuff. Um, but there were, there were a handful who said, you know, I was worried about you. Um, your level of energy was kind of crazy. Your lack of sleep was nutty. You were driving yourself and others into the ground. You were taking excessive risks on the battlefield. You were putting yourself and, and thus your force protection team, you were going places and doing things that put people at unnecessary risk. I was worried, but nobody ever came and talked to me. But it was good to get the feedback you know, years later because those were traits of bipolar. And, and things got worse and worse and more and more symptoms became evident to people until by the time I was at NDU, there were lots of people who, who knew there was something wrong with me, but nobody said anything. Uh, you know, in my entire bout with bipolar disorder, I only had one senior leader who worked directly for me, one, and it was in 2006, who said, hey, sir, I need to talk to you behind closed door. I'm really worried about you. Um, I, you know, I'm not sure you're mentally balanced. And I'm very concerned you're not getting enough sleep. You're sending emails out at midnight, one, two, three in the morning. Um, you're falling asleep in meetings. You seem very distracted. You can't seem to absorb the material, this complex material we're briefing you with. And, and I, I said, hey, I really appreciate you telling me this. Um, uh, it took a lot of you know, guts to come in and tell your boss that that's what you think. But don't worry. I'm fine. There's nothing wrong with me. I'm, I'm fine. Um, we need more people that will go in and tell the boss that they think something's wrong. And a lot of times the people who see it are junior people, like the aides to a general, the drivers, um, junior leaders in the organization. Um, it's a tall order to expect them to go into a general or a colonel and tell them, hey, I think you have you know, a mental illness. But they ought to go talk to the top senior people around them, you know, the other generals, the colonels, the senior executive service the, on the civilian side. Um, at NDU, what started happening is the, the um, escape valve for people's concern were anonymous complaints to my chain of command, up over my head to the chain of command. That was the only, because people don't feel safe um, that they can go to a boss and, um, and complain or 
confront them about a mental illness. I had a number of subordinates at NDU that said, you know, who, who was I to tell you that you had a problem? Because you were both the general and the genius. And they said, I, I had no reason. I didn't, many of them said, I only knew you as you were. I didn't know how you were before, so I had nothing to compare it against. So it's, it's very, very hard. I, I also think it's important that people who observe changes of behavior talk with family and friends, maybe, maybe talk to the medical um, people in the chain of command or that support the unit, um, talk to the chaplain, uh, encourage the person to get in for a medical evaluation. I, I had a person who did encourage me to go in for a medical evaluation and, and, and get, you know, to counter the accusations that I had a mental illness. I got the um, uh, psychiatric evaluations, but of course, they said there's nothing wrong with you. They said you're fit for duty. You're good. The other way that people at NDU um, were able to uh, vent against me besides the anonymous complaints was a number of times, there were a number of articles that were written. So they had journalists that they were friends with, and they basically put talking points or an article or a draft together and fed it to the journalist that w- who would then write an article saying that I was you know, out of control, crazy, wacky, you know, didn't know what I was doing and all that kind of thing. So that's what people did as opposed to talk to my family or talk to me. You know, General, we're on such a roll here. I think we want to blow through our break and just keep on going because sure. what you have to share, I think, is just so important, so meaningful, so significant in today's world. You've mentioned stigma and mental health. Um, so, you know, what impact did your diagnosis have on your family? You said that we shouldn't criticize someone who suffers with bipolar disorder because they need and deserve the same support as someone who has a broken arm or something similar to that. But you also note that a person with a bipolar disorder can do great harm to even the most important relationships in their lives. How did that manifest itself in your life? Um, I would say that, uh, you know, I was in a rising state of mania or manic insanity for years. And then when it went acute and how it affected me, I was really lucky. A lot of people that, that have bipolar as bad as me, they did really bad things and got arrested or did terrible things that ruined their marriage. That, that didn't happen to me. I was lucky. I mean, I guess, you know, God protected me, put a little guardian angel out there or something that protected me. But I would say once I was in acute mania, I was extremely irresponsible. Um, I was undependable. I was late for everything. I was confused. I was inconsiderate to my wife and family. You know, I would take, I would go out, I almost no, you know, very little sleep, a few hours, but I would take off and go out on my bicycle and, you know, ride like a madman through the streets of Washington, D.C. I went into acute religiosity. I mean, everything religious I liked. And I started making all my best friends in the world were from all these churches that I just met. And I would invite them to Fort McNair. I'd invite them to NDU. I'd invite them to the house. You know, it was not uncommon for me to, on the spur of the moment, invite 30 people from from some church I started going to to come for a tour of Fort McNair, come to the house for breakfast, and we'd hang out and talk for hours. I mean, just really, really inconsiderate. And my wife was thinking, what? What's, what's wrong with him? He's really losing it. Um, I was started to spend money, which is, you know, I was, I'm fair, I've always been pretty frugal, but one of the hallmarks of mania is 
just started spending money. I started giving donations, you know, thousands of thousands and thousands of dollars um, without consulting my wife. And that didn't go over too big because she kind of kept the checkbook. So she found out, hey, did you write a check for X amount to, you know, this organization? And I'm like, yeah, they're a really great organization. And, uh, you know, and on and on. It, it, that, that was not good on the family. Um, everybody I met was the most interesting person in the world, whether it was, you know, the janitor in the building, the security guard, the bartender at the local cantina. They're the most interesting, most incredible person. And then I started inviting them over to the house. Um, so those are things that affected the family. Um, new ideas every like every day I had a new great idea, which was, Hey, let's buy a house or Hey, better than that. Let's buy a house in Southeast Washington, DC, you know, at the St. Elizabeth hospital where prices are low. And then I'll, I'll put my global security university, my next grandiose idea from God, I'll put that into effect. Um, just new ideas all the time. And I, I know it drove my wife crazy, uh, but she, she was, she was persistent and, you know, she persevered and kind of kept, kept up with me. Um, you know, the other thing you mentioned, you talked about family, I, just a word on um, friends, it, that uh, it was, you know, the response and the diagnosis, how did it affect friends? I would say it was very, very mixed. Some friends were awesome. Some drifted away. Some colleagues abandoned me never to be heard from again. And some even refused my calls and emails this just months ago, trying to follow up and find out what what they saw in my manic behavior. They wouldn't return calls. They wouldn't return emails. Um, some were awesome and helped me. Uh, and it was the same with key subordinates. Uh, the stigma and the um, being shunned and pushed away by people that I worked with and thought I was pretty good to, it was worse than I expected. The stigma is definitely there. Bipolar is one of the worst mental illnesses in terms of stigma because people think it's scary and spooky. You know, a minute ago, you talked about religiosity. You said the God that protected you had given you a guardian angel, but it pains you to acknowledge that your lifelong faith had little effect on your depression. What did you learn from that? And what should we take from that? It, you know, my whole, I got, I got pretty religious in the army and, you know, religion and faith uh, played a key role in my life. And um, the, um, when I was severely depressed and, you know, which is, you know, thoughts of terror, death, you know, gruesome images and morbid thoughts of death and dying and being mangled and murdered. And they're just vivid in your mind. It's all, all day. It's every single day. And you just know it's going to happen. Um, and, and with these delusions that, that I had fabricated, my brain had fabricated, um, you know, I was praying like crazy, God, you know, pull me out of this, pull me out of this, make me well, help me to get better. And, and I didn't, I, I was in terrible, terrible shape for two years. But I think what I learned from it is hang in there, persevere. And I think probably God and faith, maybe it helped me from falling into the abyss. Maybe it kept me from my, uh, what they call passive suicidal ideations, where you imagine being killed or dying, but not actively doing it to yourself, which would be an active suicidal ideation. You know, maybe God in my faith prevented me from going from passive suicidal ideations, 
which I had, into active suicidal ideations, which means you go try to kill yourself. Maybe, maybe it did that for me. Um, maybe it was just a lesson that, you, you know, you just keep persevering no matter what the outcome. You know, like even when I was in the worst severe um, uh, depression and delusions, you know, my mother would uh, every Sunday, well, you know, every Sunday I would go to mass. Um, when I was in D.C., I started going to, you know, to even uh, noontime mass. So I was, I was, you know, just saying, hey, God, you know, help me. I want to embrace God. Help me, help me, help me. Um, but I also learned out of it a really key lesson um, that God works through medical professionals. You know, you know, he God healed me or helped me recover through the expert medical professional professionals at the VA, the psychiatrists, the psychologists, the doctors, the nurses, the people that I worked with there, their team, they, and, and then the, 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 uh, the medications. I mean, that's what got my brain back in shape. And so I, I now have great faith that, you know, God works through the people he puts in your life. I mean, he, he put those people there. He got me to the VA. So it's, it's actually, I think my faith is probably stronger. It's more intelligent. It's more sophisticated than it was beforehand. General, a moment ago, you talked about stigma and stigma affiliated with bipolar disorder. You know, there is such a stigma associated with mental illness in general that most people just refuse to discuss it. You know, I've said through many shows, I think the one positive of COVID-19 is it's brought mental health and stigma to the forefront of the conversation. Why is it so important for you to share your story with others? And what reaction have you had? You know, when I was at the VA, in the inpatient ward, in the psych ward, uh, I, in the first couple of days, I told my uh, psychotherapist, I said, hey, you know what? I want to write my story down and tell my story. She looked at me like I was crazy, <laughs> of course, which I was. And, uh, and she said, hey, well, how about you focus on getting better first and worry about writing a story later? And then, and then about a week later, I told her the same thing. Hey, I want to write it. I want to write my story. And she said, okay, I'll give you some advice. If writing your story makes you feel better and makes you recover better, then by all means, go ahead and do it. And then I ended up, you know, once I kind of got stable back in 2016, I moved to Florida and I thought about it for a number of years. And, uh, but I never had the, I was still sort of rebuilding my life, putting my life together, putting my marriage, you know, back on solid footing. And um, so my mother died about a year ago, and I got a surge of energy and motivation to write that book. And uh, so I did. So I actually attributed to my mother, her, uh, her energy kind of got me to do it. But um, I consider now bipolar to be a gift. It's not the glory days of commanding the 130th Engineer Brigade in combat, but it is a pretty significant event. And so I, I wrote the article. After I got the book all done, I wrote the article because I figured I, I need to capture this in a concise manner. The reaction to the article has been 100% positive and encouraging, uh, which is, I think, I don't think it would have been that pre-9-11. I think it would have been a lot more naysayers, skeptics, people saying that I'm a wimp. Uh, this guy's just weak. You know, if he was really, you know, a hardcore soldier, he wouldn't have gotten it. He would have willed it away. 
Um, but I did it because it's my late in life gift. I figured I had to do something positive with it. I knew how many people have, have these disorders, how prevalent it is, and how, because of the stigma, people don't talk about it, and they don't get care, and they don't get taken care of, and then all the devastating effects. And so it became my mission, and it is my mission um, to keep, just tell my story, you know, verbally, in writing, to help, you know, help save lives, help stop the stigma. And I would also say one of the things that's happened out of all this is it's really increased, uh, I would say, my humility, my patience, and my generosity. So kind of good positive traits that uh, that I, I probably had a lot less of before. I still don't have enough of those good things, but it's a lot more than prior. <laughs> You've made the point that we shouldn't be treating mental and physical health as separate issues. Would you please elaborate on that perspective? Yes. Mental health is really brain health. And a brain is a physical entity. It's an organ of the body, like your heart or something, your stomach, your heart, only much more complex. And the illness is biochemical. And so those things together, the fact that it's the brain, which is a physical organ, and that it's biochemistry, it's, it is by definition physical. It's not mental. It, 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 uh, it results in mental outcomes, but the real issue is physical. Um, and I would say that it's because it's the brain and we know so little about the brain, it's much harder for doctors to diagnose a mental health disorder or mental illness than it is to diagnose cancer, a broken arm, diabetes. It's often easy to look for the negative and criticize others. But let's start with what the military is doing right in the realm of mental health. Could you comment on that? Yes. Compared to when I came in the Army in 1975, I would say that today, and especially since the, you know, the post-9-11 or the 9-11 wars and even since, there's much more awareness, there's more training, there's more compassion, there's much more understanding, but there's still a long way to go. And... But I will say at the higher levels of, you know, generals, admirals, colonels, Navy captains, you know, sergeants, major and in the, the NCO ranks, I think there's a very strong understanding and compassion for this. But the military is a high pressure, high stress organization with big, tough missions. And we need every single soldier at their best, you know, doing their job. So when someone has a breakdown or is suffering from a mental disorder or mental illness, it does harm or take a toll on unit readiness. And so you have these two competing things. Um, but I do think the military has improved tremendously since I was, since I've come in. So despite these improvements, suicide in the military continues to be an alarming issue. In 2018, the department of defense's quarterly suicide report showed that 325 active duty, 135 National Guard and 81 reserve personnel died by suicide. Among veterans no longer active, a 2016 report from the Department of Veterans Affairs showed 6,079 veterans died by suicide in that year alone. You know, we hear the phrase 20 a day all too often. How do we get ahead of suicides, you know, get upstream, if you will, to reduce those numbers of tragedies? 
first off, it's a wider, wider societal challenge, um, as well as the military and veterans. Um, I think the military and the vets get a, a lot of attention, and I'm glad they do because it puts a spotlight on the issue, so we can we can fix it. I'm I'm glad, and America really cares about its veterans. But I was listening to um, a, a pretty in depth piece on National Public Radio, and um, they they talked about the society. They didn't talk about the military at all, but just the tremendous problems systemically in the broader American society with knowledge, awareness, prevention, access to care, and, and so on and so forth. Um, you know the problems with the insurance industry. Um, so I think the military and the veteran uh, populations have to be, you know, sort of looked at within the broader context of the larger civilian population. Um, inside the military, in, in the veteran community, um, we talked about awareness, that's key. Education, critical. Counseling is huge. Um, we need to understand what are the indicators and symptoms of mental health and mental illness you know, what kinds of treatments are available, what kinds of support are needed. Um, I think we need to be really aware of changes in behavior. Like I talked about before, when good troops go violent or turn bad, you know, what's going on inside of that situation. Um, I also think we need to take a really hard look at the serving military population and try to do an accurate assessment of, of what kind of numbers are we really talking about in terms of serious mental illness. And I say that from the perspective of my read of all the statistics, and let's just take bipolar, for example, um, that there's very low levels of um, uh, reported bipolar disorder in the serving military population. Um, okay, that might be accurate, Maybe it's not, but if it's that low, how does it jump to the report I saw, 80,000 veterans being treated for bipolar disorder? How do you go from a very low level to a very high level with the same people? Because if you look at bipolar, the age that people come in the military predominantly is 18 to 25. Well, that's the prime years for an onset of bipolar disorder. And then if you look at the personality types that tend to migrate towards bipolar, it's high energy, high drive, aggressiveness, enthusiasm, those kind of things. And then thirdly, we take these people who are predisposed more or less to bipolar, we put them in a high stress environment, which could trigger it. So I wonder what the real numbers of bipolar are and other mental disorders are inside the military when I see such a huge number being treated in the VA. You've praised the VA hospital and White River Junction, Vermont, where you spent your two weeks as an inpatient and four weeks as an outpatient for saving your life. And it was not just any VA hospital, but that specific one. What did they do differently there? And how can a patient in such dire straits have things turn around so quickly? Um, okay. First off, as you know, I, I love the VA. They've been good to me. And they're not perfect and they have challenges. The biggest challenge they have is there's so many veterans 
competing for their small number of services, but they're good. And, um, and, and I really like them, but in general, the thing that I really liked about the VA in, um, White River Junction, Vermont, was they were very professional. They were caring and compassionate. Uh, they tried everything except lithium, which took them six months to try because they were cautious and they really um, put a little bit of a, a fright is too big of a word, but they really made me cautious because of this, the negative side effects of lithium. But that's about the only thing that I would say they could have done better on is get me on lithium sooner um, because it did take six months. In the inpatient ward, which was the best thing that ever happened to me, they had a team approach. And I don't know how this compares to other military, VA, or civilian um, psych wards, but this team approach was phenomenal. I mean, every day they would have my psychiatrist, the ECT, the electroconvulsive therapy psychiatrist, the backup psychiatrist, a psych, your psychotherapist, your pharmacologist, the head nurse, and the chaplain, seven people. They would sit at a table and they would like ask you questions and give you feedback about everything. And then they gave you a chance to ask them questions and give them feedback about things. And so every day I would go in and was, this was like, you know, I, I've got seven professionals focused on my favorite person in the world, me, listening to my favorite person, me, talk about myself to them with great interest. It was phenomenal. And they, uh, they were just great professionals. They, were, they, uh, they had a sense of humor. You know, I found I could joke around with them. And uh, it was, they were just really, really good. Um, so then when it was, they, uh, I, I got electroconvulsive therapy, which is where they put nodes on your head and they, they fire electrical shocks through your skull into your brain to stimulate a, a, uh, a convulsion and they measure it and it's designed to solve the problems you're having. And uh, so, so they, they can only, I ha you can only do three per week. And so I had to stay for four more weeks and they put me up in a dorm inside the hospital, on the hospital grounds. And so I did every VA program that they would let me into. I mean, I did everything, including Alcoholics Anonymous. I did yoga, Tai Chi, I rest. Uh, I did, uh, I saw my therapist as many days as I could. I went to the chaplain continuously. This chaplain was dynamite and she was just great. Really, really helped me. And, uh, and then I went hiking out through the mountains and I joined the local fitness club and, you know, I worked out for like three hours a day. And so it was a wonderful experience. Um, but once I left the VA, I sunk back into depression and I stayed pretty depressed until I got on lithium. So, General, we have just a few minutes left. You've mentioned a few times you've been writing a book about your journey. How's that going? And is there a timeline yet for its completion and publication? Okay. Um, yes. Uh, it took me a year to write. Um, I started it about a year ago, and there's a lot in it. I did many, many drafts. I had to get the Pentagon Security Clearance Review. Uh, the name, the tentative title is Battling Bipolar, a general's war with mental illness. Uh, it's with a publisher right now under their review. I anticipate uh, that, you know, when a publisher accepts it, it'll take about a year to get out on the street. So let's say next June is my hope.
So what's your parting advice for our audience and how they can feel more empowered, lead through adversity, and achieve their goals? I would say, number one, understand and accept reality. Know where you are and accept ground truth. Figure out where you want to go and call on your higher power to help get you there. Then give it your very, very best effort, 100%. Reach out to the experts and get their help. And in my case, that was psychiatric help. Call on your family, your friends, and your colleagues. And then work, work, work. Stay with it. Never quit. Stay vigilant. And then keep an attitude of gratitude and help others. The last thing I would say is keep a sense of balance with what I call the five F's. And the five F's are faith, stay grounded in your faith, family, take care of and stay with your family, fitness, mind, body, spirit. So faith, family, fitness, friends, make friends. It's a huge part of being a healthy, happy person. And then have fun. Enjoy yourself. Like I'm having a fun, fun with my, you know, my new war on bipolar. (laughs) Well, it's been a fun conversation with you today, sir. And I appreciate your time. General Greg Martin, thanks so much for being with us today. You're welcome, Chris. And thank you for all you're doing with Soldier Strong and for helping to take care of our troops. Thank you, sir. And thanks to our audience for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. I'm Chris Meek. For more details about upcoming shows and guests, please follow me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Chris Meek public figure and on Twitter at Chris Meek underscore USA. We'll be back next Tuesday, same time, same place with another leader from the world of business, politics, sports, or entertainment. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward. Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.